Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles and open up to the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read verses 9 through 11 now as we prepare to hear from Hunter Rue as he closes out our Lenten series titled Restored Lives. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. This past Wednesday afternoon, we had a staff meeting and Travis Simone, our lead pastor, shared a story about our late pastor emeritus whose name was Dick Woodward. Now, Dick Woodward was a young man training to go into ministry one day and he was living and being educated in South Carolina. And in order to help train for ministry, he would seek out opportunities to preach on Sunday mornings at churches that did not have a pastor or needed a pastor to preach. We call it pulpit supply, which is a little bit of a funny word. Maybe you could call it guest preaching. And Dick had this opportunity to drive to the tobacco country of South Carolina and preach a sermon. And he drove at least several hours to get to this location of this small church. And as he pulled up to the church, he didn't see a lot of people. So he got out of his car and behind the church, he found a group of men smoking behind the church. And he probably thought to himself, all right, I get an opportunity to minister to some heathens today. And he said to them, well, who are you all, gentlemen? And they said, we're some of the deacons of the church. To which Dick was very surprised and that took him a little bit of time to recover. And they looked at him and they said, well, who are you, young man? And he said, well, I'm the guest preacher who's going to preach at your church this morning. And I drove a far way to get here. And they looked at him and they said, we're not listening to anyone who drove that far on the Sabbath. And they went inside and they shut the doors. And he was not able to preach that morning at that church. The point is, sometimes when we elevate something that's less important to a place of ultimate importance, we miss what is most important. And the truth is, we can actually do this in our spiritual lives as we seek to walk after Jesus, to the point where we actually miss the most important and truest restoration that Jesus Christ desires to bring into our lives through the beautiful message of the gospel that he, uh, he came to proclaim and embody. We find that this was a problem for the religious leaders in Jesus' day as well. As we have just heard from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and as we come soon to the end of our Restored Lives series, the message this morning is entitled, What They Might Do to Jesus. Now, to set the context for why this is the case, if we look back in chapter 5 of Luke, which was the passage that Travis preached on last week, we find in verses 37 and following that Jesus shares the following words. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. 
And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. So these verses really set up what's happening here in Luke chapter 6, because what has happened is that Jesus has come to bring a new way or a new understanding of God's kingdom redemption work in the world. And unfortunately for the religious leaders, they had old wineskins or hardened hearts that were not willing to receive this new wine, this new understanding, and this new truth. And as a result of this, Jesus wants to illustrate this principle by how he approaches a very important institution to the Jewish faith, an institution called and a practice called the Sabbath. Jesus performed several miracles on the Sabbath. That's why the Pharisees and the religious leaders were a little suspicious of his activities, especially on the Sabbath. And he also proclaimed the kingdom message of the gospel on the Sabbath, often in the Gospel of Luke. And here we're going to see back-to-back instances where Jesus is proclaiming something and performing something on back-to-back Sabbaths. And you'll notice even in our text today that the word Sabbath is repeated six times. The main idea that I would like for us to take away from the passage today in our time in God's word is that true restoration requires us to recognize and respond to the authority of Jesus Christ. I'll say that one more time. True restoration requires us to recognize and respond to the authority of Jesus Christ. And as we look at Luke chapter 6, we find in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus declares his authority. And in verses 6 through 11, Jesus demonstrates that same authority. So let's look and dive a little bit into our text as Jesus declares his authority in verses 1 through 5. And maybe the key word here to think of, the key verb is plucking. Plucking, which is an interesting word. But we start as we read, on a Sabbath, verse 1 begins. Now, Just to let you know, uh, the timing is key to the context of what's happening and key to the setting. Because we've been hearing this word Sabbath, but in order to close a bit of that chasm that exists between the ancient Jewish world and the modern day American world, maybe we need to understand what this Sabbath meant. For the Jews, Sabbath started on sundown on Friday and went to sundown on Saturday. So yes, Jews practiced and still do practice the Sabbath or the Shabbat on Saturdays. As Christians, by and large, we practice the Sabbath on a Sunday because ever since the fourth century, that's been the practice of the church because it is the Lord's day, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. But for the Jewish Sabbath, the Jewish Jewish Shabbat, No work was done for a 24-hour period. And we find that this principle of Sabbath was actually modeled by God himself in the act of creation, which means that Jesus, as the Son of God, before he took on flesh, was participating in the Sabbath, one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, we read, And on the seventh day, that is after six days of creation, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God is modeling this principle of rest. In fact, he does so to command his people to also practice this practice of rest. 
One of the Ten Commandments we find in Exodus chapter 20 regards the Sabbath. And it is actually one of the lengthiest of the Ten Commandments for that reason. Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11 reads, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, even the animals get the day off, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. These are foundational texts for a foundational practice for God's people. The Sabbath was meant to be a gift to God's people. It was also a sign of the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. Because here's here's how this would work out. In an agrarian society in the ancient world, you were expected to work the fields seven days a week. Now, I am a suburban boy from the hard suburbs of Connecticut, so I do not understand working the fields very much, I will admit. Uh, But this idea does make some sense to me that if you live in an agrarian society, you are required to work the fields every day to help your crops grow and flourish. And what God was doing is he was telling his people, if you will obey me and experience rest on that seventh day, just trust me and watch what I do. Your crops will flourish because I will flourish, allow them to flourish, and I will bless them. And then what that means is that all of those nations around you that don't believe in me, who think you're foolish for taking a seventh day off, will actually realize that your crops are looking a lot better than theirs. And they might begin to ask why. And that's when you tell them, it's not about us. It's about Yahweh God, who we serve. Come, know him. So the Sabbath was really meant to be a missional part of God's people's existence. Now, unfortunately, the meaning of all this had gotten lost. This great gift had gotten a little bit covered and layered in man-made tradition. And its real meaning had gotten lost over the years. We read on in verse 1, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. This was common. This might sound like a strange practice to us, but this was a common way that God allowed for his people who grew crops to bless their neighbor. So if you went through the field of your neighbor, you were actually, you could take some grain and eat it. I'm not recommending that when we're on the Green Springs Trail or anything that we go to those cornfields and just start plucking corn and taking it. This was for God's people in God's time in the Old Testament. But this was commonly done. In in response to this plucking, verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The Pharisees, as many of us may know, are this conservative religious group, about 6,000 in number, And they had, unfortunately, added a lot to God's law and God's truth. So much so that the meaning and the gift of it had gotten covered up over the years. What's interesting is that they actually speak something untrue. When they say, why are you you doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? It actually was very much allowed to be done on the Sabbath. It was very much allowed to be done in general. Deuteronomy 23, verse 25 reads, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. 
And this was the principle that was lost. You could go and you could pluck and eat. You just couldn't harvest on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees actually had an inaccurate understanding of what was happening. And they had taken God's good gift of the Sabbath and twisted it because of their overly legalistic understanding. In fact, over the years, there were some some oral teachings that had been added to God's written word and authoritative word. Eventually, these oral teachings got written down in a book and a work called the Mishnah, which means repeated study. And in one section of the Mishnah, the writers refer to the 40 minus 1, i.e. the 39 different activities that were not allowed to be done on the Sabbath. But none of these were actually mentioned in God's word. And so the Mishnah in itself, in one of its sections, even refers to all of the laws and the rules that had been added to God's word with the following phrase, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for scripture is scanty and rules many. What this picture portrays is this giant mountain being like a puppet dangling by just a few hairs, which means it's, it's got no foundation, it's going to fall. Because so many rules had been added to God's original word that even the writers of the Mishnah said, maybe we've got too many rules here because there's less evidence for them in God's actual word. What we find is this principle that Jesus tells the Pharisees they are violating in Mark chapter, nine verses, or Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 9. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. We find that the Pharisees had elevated their man-made traditions and understandings to the same level and even above the level of God's word itself. They thought that plucking was the same as threshing and winnowing. They thought rubbing was the same as preparing a meal, and it was not. In their minds, the disciples had violated their man-made laws, but they had actually not violated God's original command. That The Pharisees missed it. They missed out on it. Now, in response to this misunderstanding, Jesus decides it's story time. And he steps in, even though the Pharisees address the disciples, Jesus slides in and says, well, by the way, in verse 3, have you not read? And this would have been very offensive to these religious leaders who Read the Old Testament a lot. Have you not read that David, what David did when he was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? So Jesus, in his story time, goes back to a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21 in the Old Testament where you have King David who is actually, this is not one of David's finest moments, I will say, which is interesting that Jesus refers to this. David is on the run for his life. King Saul, David's not king yet, but he will become king eventually. King Saul wants to kill him, and David is running and fleeing for his life. And so he approaches this this structure called the tabernacle, which was the place where God was centrally worshipped. And it's at a place called Nob, which is about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. And he approaches the high priest, Ahimelech, and he says, "Uh, yeah, I'm on a special assignment from uh, King Saul. He's, because Ahimelech's like, David, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm on special assignment for the the king, you know, me and my my guys, and uh, I don't have anything to eat. Because he was desperate and he was hungry. 
And uh, Ahimelech says, well, all I have to eat is the bread of the presence, also known as the showbread, which were these 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was set out in the tabernacle and later the temple every Sabbath. It was refreshed. And the only people who were allowed to eat that bread, according to God's law, were the priests. And so Ahimelech says, well, you know, you're, we know you're going to be king. So here, take this bread and give it to your guys. David takes it and he eats it. Actually, he does what's unlawful. Jesus does not actually deny that David does something wrong according to the law of Moses. But what he does say by telling this story is, if you're going to condemn my men for doing something that does not violate the law of Moses, then by default, you should be condemning David for doing something that does violate the law of Moses. Because interestingly, Scripture never condemns David for what he does. And one of the principles that Jesus is trying to draw out is that human physical need in this moment are more important than religious traditions. The Pharisees would have bristled at this idea of Jesus challenging their scriptural understanding, but also drawing an association between him and David. And what they failed to realize is that Jesus is the son of God and the descendant of David and the true king. As a result of that, he has the ultimate authority and the ultimate say, which is why he concludes the section with these words. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. As the son of man, as the son of God, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, in the original Greek language of the New Testament, the word Lord is thrust to the front of the sentence so that literally it reads, Lord is of the Sabbath, the son of man. Tom Constable writes the following words about this section. Jesus' point was that the son of man, because of who he is, has the right to violate the Sabbath. Jesus was not violating the Sabbath by doing what he did, but he had the right to do so. This was another claim to divine authority. God is greater than the laws he has imposed. He can even change them when he chooses to do so. Jesus clearly declared his authority. How would the Pharisees respond to this? What would they do? What would their next move be? Well, the good news is we don't have to wait very long to find out. As we look at the next portion of our reading, which is that Jesus demonstrates his authority. The authority that he has just declared, that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he now demonstrates that through a healing that happens on the following Sabbath. So we look at verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, we don't know if this was necessarily the next week. It could have been several weeks later. But another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So this was Jesus' commonplace of, of showing up, showing up at the synagogue, the place of Jewish community and worship on the Sabbath, a holy day for the Jewish faith. And Jesus is teaching. Again, with all of the problems that his teaching, his new wine was creating and the, the old wineskins that had problems receiving his new wine, it's still amazing to me that Jesus was allowed to keep teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. But here he was. And a man with a withered hand, his right hand, that's an important detail, his right hand was withered. Now, this man probably, the word withered here means like dehydrated. It, it had basically... 
Um, he was unable to use it, unable to extend it, almost like it was paralyzed. And since most people are right-handed, as history shows, this significantly impacted this man's livelihood. Some people wonder, was this man planted there by the religious leaders as a test to see what Jesus would do? We don't know. We just know that he was there. And now, verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So what we see here is that the religious leaders are expanding their pool a little bit. They're drafting some free agents. So not only do we just have the Pharisees from the previous passage, but the scribes and the Pharisees, because Jesus, in their estimation, with their old wineskins, teaching this new wine is a problem, and they need to sort of rally together in an effort to stop him. And they watch him. The word there, watched, is an interesting one. It can be translated to spy on. It's a very sinister word. It means almost to look at through the corner of one's eye with suspicion. They clearly expected Jesus to do something and to do something wrong, and they are watching him in hopes of getting that gotcha moment. Uh, We knew you would do this. We got you. Interestingly, when they say that they wanted to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse them, in the thinking of, of their religious way, the only work that was able to be done medically was work that was necessary for preserving life or saving life. So if someone's life was in absolute danger, then yes, on the Sabbath, you can help provide medical care. This would include the birthing of children. If a child was uh, to be born on the Sabbath and the, the mother was delivering that child, then yes, that would be allowed. But aside from that, anything that was not essential was not allowed in their estimation. And in spite of, uh, as verse 8 tells us, he knew their thoughts. In spite of knowing everything as the all-knowing Son of God, Jesus still publicly and courageously acts. He says to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. If we can imagine this synagogue setting, four walls, probably benches around so that people and several rows of benches so that everyone could look to the middle. Jesus invites this man to stand up in front of everyone, very publicly. He's not afraid of the religious leaders and what they think. And he says to them a very penetrating question. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? The answer should be pretty obvious. It is lawful to do good and it is lawful to save life. And after looking around at them, some of the other gospels say he looked around with righteous anger at them. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. You can imagine this miraculous moment. I don't know how long his hand had been withered, but he stretches it out, and it's restored. It's brought back to integrity. Notice, by the way, uh, the work that Jesus did is he only spoke. He didn't touch the man. He didn't even put his hand around him. He simply spoke. And as a result of that, The man is healed. We find in all of this, the Sabbath had been given as a gift and a blessing to God's people, Israel. And they were called to bless others on the Sabbath just as God had blessed them. 
It was lawful. It was lawful to do good and to save life. Physical needs were more important than spiritual traditions in this case as well. And Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, came to do good and to save. Consequently, uh, he is rebuked by the religious leaders. And interestingly, they are essentially put on trial here. When Jesus says, is it lawful to do good and to save life? What he's saying is that you are doing the exact opposite. You are doing harm and you are destroying life. And this was the mindset of the religious leaders moving forward from this point because they would ultimately seek to destroy the life of Jesus as well. Daryl Bach, a commentator, writes the following words. The miracle serves as an audiovisual, painting or pointing to the truth and its agent. Jesus publicly displays his authority on the Sabbath and leaves it to his opponents to respond. God has shown his power and compassion through Jesus. He's brought this physical restoration as a clear demonstration of his authority as the Son of Man. So our main idea is that true restoration requires us to recognize and respond to the authority of Jesus Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we respond to the authority of Jesus Christ? How do we respond? Let's consider the example of the Pharisees as their theological inflexibility had led them to overapply the law leading to the adoption of man-made traditions that caused them to miss the original intent and blessing of God's original word. In response to Jesus performing this miracle of this man's hand being brought back to restoration, they are filled, as the text tells us, with fury. Literally, the word means mindless. They were so mindlessly enraged at what they had seen because they couldn't believe how God would respond favorably to a man that they believed was a sinner who was sinning on the Sabbath by doing this work of healing. And yet a healing had clearly taken place. And so they reacted in rage. And this is where the the high point really reaches with Jesus and his opposition with the religious leaders. Ultimately, Jesus has the full authority, but they did not recognize it because they did not want to surrender to it. Jesus brought a new way or new wine, but their old wineskins or hardened hearts were not available to receive it, and they missed out. The text tells us that as a result of this, they talked with one another about what they might do to Jesus. They started talking about how they could take this threat out. How they could eliminate this man who was such a problem to them in their way of life. And we know that this would ultimately lead to the events that we think about here in our present day on this Palm Sunday. The events that would eventually start with this declaration of Hosanna as Jesus rode in and was waving and waving, the palms were waving. It would lead to his betrayal on Thursday as he's having supper with his disciples and his ultimate arrest and then his crucifixion on Good Friday where the same voices, many, that would have yelled Hosanna now turned and yelled crucify him. 
All of this because the religious leaders failed to recognize and respond to the authority of Jesus, therefore missing out on the true restoration that he came to offer through the gospel. Now, friends, we can easily criticize the Pharisees and say, shame on them. I know I can. But I think we have to honestly say, we, we can be a lot more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. So just as the Pharisees asked what they might do with Jesus, we should ask, what, what might we do? What might I do? What might you do with Jesus? And specifically, with the authority of Jesus. What might we do when the authority of Jesus contradicts our understanding or, in most cases, our desires for our lives? We have two equally unhealthy, extreme responses in our spiritual lives. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, your response and my response to the authority of Jesus can go two unhealthy ways. The one is rigid legalism, like the Pharisees, and at times the church. See, deacons smoking who won't let a man preach who drove so far on the Sabbath. But we can also respond with rampant self-indulgence, which is promoted by the world, but at times lived out by us, even in the church. And both ways of living fail to recognize the true authority of the Lord Jesus and prevent us from experiencing his gracious restoration in our lives. At times, I know my own legalistic tendencies prevent me from growing as a disciple of Jesus and experiencing the freedom of the gospel At times when I elevate something that's less important to a place of greater importance. Or maybe in a culture where we worship at the altar of the autonomous self, our stubborn hearts want to rebel, at times I know mine does, to rebel against the authority of Jesus because it comes in conflict with what I want in the moment. So we have to ask, how have our own man-made traditions, culturally informed opinions, Humanly-centered ambitions or sinful and selfish motivations gotten in the way of us recognizing and responding to the beautiful authority of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. God's truth never changes. But we can diminish and we can rationalize and we can justify our actions. To combat this, we must remember who Jesus is and why he came. As John 10, 10 and 11 reads, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As the good shepherd and the lamb of God, Jesus came to lay down his life so that we might have life. And he could do that because he had authority. Some scholars believe that Palm Sunday was the same day that the Passover lambs were selected by the Jewish people, the 10th day of the month of Nisan. If that is true, then how appropriate that Jesus, as the ultimate lamb of God, would enter the city of Jerusalem on that day to be both her savior and her king. He is the Lord. He came to do good. He came to save not just on the Sabbath, but for all time. And he is sovereign over the Sabbath because he's sovereign over all things. This means that Jesus is the Lord of my life. He's the Lord of my relationships, my marriage, my parenting, 
He's the Lord of our finances. He's the Lord of our social media posts. He's the Lord of our identity. He's the Lord of our sexuality. He's the Lord of all. And he invites us to surrender to his authority in order that we might experience the greatest restoration, the greatest blessing in all that he desires for us. Surrender is the only proper response, but it is only possible as we rely on his grace because left to myself, I can't do it on my own. And when we respond in surrender to his authority, we find that he is not a burdensome dictator, but he is a benevolent savior. And he offers us abundant life as we avail ourselves to him and recognize his truth, his ways, his authority, and experience his restoration. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and his community. Have a blessed day. Thank you.